<laughs> a history of comedy. It's Come and have a rummage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's several objects. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. Hello and welcome to A History of Comedy in Several Objects, a podcast brought to you by the University of Kent based on the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive. The British Stand-Up Comedy Archive exists to collect, preserve and make accessible material relating to stand-up comedy. In this podcast, we take one object or item from the collections per episode and discuss it to see what it can tell us about stand-up comedy. I'm Ollie Double. This is my colleague, Elspeth Miller. And we are very much the Nina Conti and Monkey of comedy archiving. Oh, great. Yeah, good one. Yeah. <laughs> and you're definitely Nina. I end up being Monkey. <laughs> OK, thanks. <laughs> well, I don't know. If you'd rather be Monkey, you no, can be. I'd, well, I don't know. She, I, I think mean, I'll Nina. be Nina, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Nina Conti's amazing. Yeah, she, she's an amazing performer. I think what what I think is amazing about Nina Conti is that she's th- there's only one other vent. I don't know much about ventriloquism, but there's only one other vent act that I think has this quality where the the acting of herself as as a legitimate double act partner, as it were, to the dummies uh, or the dolls or whatever. Um, is a huge part of it. You know, there's a, there's a huge contrast, particularly with Monkey, huge contrast between the naughtiness of Monkey, the rudeness and obnoxiousness of Monkey, or lovable obnoxiousness of Monkey, and the embarrassed, giggling, kind of put into a, an uncomfortable spot, Nina. And, and the only other vent that I can think of that had that amazing contrast that worked so beautifully was a guy called Arthur Worsley, who worked in Variety, who... His big thing was he barely ever spoke, and the dummy bullies him. It's so frightening watching it. He's going. He says things like, "Say that without moving your lips. You can't do it, can you?" <laughs> and it's just it's horrible. But he he acts it kind of like Stan Laurel or something. Do you like Nina Conti and Monkey? Yes, I do. Well, I've never seen her live. Them live only kind of on TV. She's she's a really really good live performer. Yeah, I, I interviewed think, her on yeah. stage. Yeah, in 2015. That's right. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and and, and it was amazing because she, she said, I've got Monkey with me, but I, I won't bring him out initially, otherwise we won't be able to talk. Okay. <laughs> it, it was fantastic because you know, he's got these little kind of beady glass eyes. And he's just a little, I mean, he's a commercially made, made toy, but, you know, you, when the eyes fix you, you feel like a real person is looking at yeah. you. She, I think she's a phenomenon, actually. What does what does he carried around in? Like, what? Well, it was just in a, he was he was just in her bag. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't a special, <laughs> you know, like a monkey carrying case, case or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, but anyway, this episode isn't isn't about that, is it? What what is the object that we have today? We the object or the item or the recording is okay, a recording. Virtual yeah. <laughs> um, it's a recording of um, or from a Linda Smith show or of a Linda Smith show. Yeah. Um, from 1990. Um, it was a solo stand-up show that she performed at the Irish Centre in Sheffield. So um, it was originally recorded on VHS. So we've got the VHS. Um, but I suppose we're taking the cassette copy that we've got today, really. Yes. Because we don't have video. It's not a what is, is it vlogs? What's a, what's a video podcast called? A vodcast, a vodcast, I don't know. yeah. This is an audio podcast. It's an audio so it's podcast. A, it's an audio recording of a Linda Smith show. It's an audio recording. Well, it's it's, it's an excerpt, in fact. It's a tiny yeah. excerpt yeah. from an audio recording. Okay. 
of how do we come to choose that? How did we come to choose it, Ollie? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's me. I should yeah. answer that. Fine. Uh, so, so basically, I, w- I was in London doing some research and I had a call from Warren Lakin. Now, Warren had a important role in the British stand-up comedy archive, right? Very, yeah. I mean, I wasn't here no. when he approached you, but he offered Lynn Smith's collection to the University of Kent via via you. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's been very really supportive in terms of helping us then establish the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive as a kind of, as a collection. Um, has given us lots of kind of names of people to contact and lots of people who have offered us support. In 2015, he, um, through Lake and McCarthy, um, you went up to Edinburgh and did a number of events kind of in Edinburgh in conversation events. So That was the, the Nina Codsey was one yeah, of those. So, yeah, yeah, so... And he's also, I mean, he, he's helped us, us to set up the Linda Smith Lecture, an mm. annual lecture in Linda's memory. And we just had, at the time of recording this, we just had the, the fourth one um, with Barry Cryer, yep. um, which is a really nice event. I mean, it's a sort of, people get up and speak and they're, they're different depending on who's, who's giving them. Um, but they, 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 they normally have some serious reflection on the business of comedy, and, but done in a very engaging, funny way. Uh, so 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 Warren has been a real friend and supporter. But anyway, I had a call from Warren. So because I well because a a because he's been sort of so sort of supportive of us. But b because I really really like him as well. You know, I took took his call even though it came at a kind of slightly awkward moment because I was just about to go in and interview somebody um, for a research project I'm doing. And so I said, look, I can't, can't. I, we spoke briefly about what it was about, and then I I raged to call him back later, which I did. And he said, have you seen the film Funny Cow? So, I mean, if you, 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 you've presumably heard of the film. I have. I haven't seen it yet, though. I do want to because I think Maxine Peake's amazing. I think but, Maxine Peake's amazing. Yeah. She's a really good actor, I think, and, and a really interesting sort of um, figure in a way. And um, so the film came, I think it was made, it was completed, I think it first did uh, festivals and things last year, so 2017. Uh, but it's, it came on release, I think, in April this year 2018 it was directed by adrian shergold and it was written by tony pitts an actor and writer who hails from sheffield originally and it's set in sheffield it's it's about the world of working men's clubs and working men's club comedy maxine peak plays the eponymous character funny cow you don't find out her real name she's just known as funny cow um, and and it's really really nice. I'm not going to say much about the film. But the one thing I will say is it's really nice to see a film about uh, you know the working class woman as as the main character reflecting her experience. And I know that Maxine Peake fought quite hard to get the film made. Um, but there was something that had bothered Warren about seeing it that had bothered him and annoyed him about it. I should just say a couple of things because it will become relevant later on. There are two important locations in the film. Dial House Social Club, which is possibly the biggest working men's style club in Sheffield. Um, and it's long had that. It's a really important venue for entertainment in working men's clubs. But more importantly in the film, Crooks Club, or to give it its full name, Crooks Social Club. I used to live in, in uh, Walkley, which is just down the road from Crooks. And I used to live in Crooksmoor as well, which again is just down the road from Crooks. So that's the setting of the film. And what had annoyed Warren is that there's a, there's a thing in the film where Funny Cow, played by Maxine Peake, says a joke. And this is the version of the joke as quoted in a review. Well, as it's, as, as it's a woman, would you mind reading it out? I've... 
Uh, so she's talking about Rotherham, I think. Yeah, that's right. Which I guess the character is from. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Or, or, um, or they've, re- or she's performing in Rotherham. No, okay. she must be from Rotherham because she's. I think we see her performing the gag in Sheffield. I think. Okay. Um, so the quote is, "We're not twinned with anywhere, but we've got a suicide pact with Doncaster." Right. Or so Doncaster. we're not. Yeah, okay. Doncaster. Yeah. So we're not twinned with anywhere, but we've got a suicide pact with Doncaster. And in the film. It, she's taken that joke from another comic. And that's accurate in a way. I mean, in the sense that c- comedians in working men's clubs saw and continue, you know, those that still work that circuit, see material as being common property. You know, a lot of the jokes are a bloke walked into a pub style joke. So there was this Englishman, this Irishman, a Scotsman or or whatever. A lot of the jokes are shared. Um, I mean, in the early 70s, there was a series, The Comedians uh, by Granada Television. And, and you could hear the same joke told by different comedians with, with, you know, you know, all the things you could vary in a joke were not varied. If you see what I mean, like the basic mm. setup was, the setup was identical as well as the punchline being identical. So, so joke theft was a, was we're not even almost seen as theft. I remember I asked a working men's comedian to give his permission to quote his material in my first book. And his letter said, I don't need to give my permission. Nobody owns material. Right. Does that go back to, you know, in a previous episode, we were talking about um, you could buy jokes. Um, does that go to, go back to that um, tradition? Well, I suppose it way? does. I mean, you know, comedians weren't always expected to write their own stuff. That started in this country. I mean, there were comedians that wrote their own material, but it started as an ethos, probably little bit in in the comedy and the folk clubs in the 60s and 70s, although there was a lot of shared material between those guys. And they did tell old gags as well. Um, but the, the, the ethos really then started with alternative comedy. And even then, you did get some borrowing, stealing or buying and selling of each other's jokes a bit. So that did happen even then. But the, the ethos was that you didn't, you know, that you wrote your own material. Mm. Um, but in working men's clubs, that, that wouldn't even be an issue. It wouldn't even be a thing as as you young people say <laughs> so 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 but 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 Warren's concern was that that joke sounded very very familiar to him in fact it was a joke that was told by Linda Smith it was Linda's joke and in fact the I, you know around this time i saw a big discussion on facebook uh, by you know with a lot of comedians involved i won't mention names because they might not want this in the podcast, but there, there was a lot of discussion and a lot of people said it's really bad because they haven't attributed the joke or asked for permission. And, you know, it, it, even now, you know, that's 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 a really important thing for comedians. Some people said they thought it was one of those old jokes, a standard joke. Somebody said they thought it was perhaps a J- Jasper Carrot joke from the 70s. Uh, so I thought we would use the resources of the stand-up archive to research the provenance of the joke and Linda's authorship of the joke so i mean i mean what kind of materials do you think would have been helpful for that i mean you helped me with it so what kind of materials were you able to draw out um so we looked at old set lists yeah um we looked at the earlier audio recordings that we've got yeah to see if we could find a reference in there um and then we used a lot of press so I was sort of familiar with it, I think, from cataloguing the material. This was a familiar joke to me because yeah. it was quoted a lot right. in, in press coverage about her, not only kind of the early material, but um, after she died and 
when people are kind of writing about her, that joke was often quoted um, quite a lot. So, yes, we used some press clips that we had as well. Yeah. Um, so so recording set lists and, mm. and, and sort of press clips. And we've got a recording right now. Uh, this is not, this doesn't contain the joke, the, the, the key joke. But the reason that I, uh, we're including this in the episode is because talking to Warren about it, which which I did, I mean, I said to him, when do you think she introduced it into the act? And he said that he thought she introduced it as soon as she started talking about coming from Erith. Because before that, she used to do jokes about Clive, right? So Clive was... Clive was the, her imaginary boyfriend, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, her yeah. kind of imaginary sort of feminist man, sort of annoying boyfriend uh so so yeah uh, uh, but 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 in the late 80s uh, warren said he thought maybe 87 88 um linda started being more autobiographical and talking about her own life and her background so what we have here is a recording of her made in pontefract on the 9th of may 1988 and this is an early example of how she used to talk about iris she doesn't use that precise joke but you'll hear her thoughts on her hometown edit i come from the south east but i don't want it kind of sets up Stereotypes when you say that people think, oh, you must be posh, you must be rich, you know, because I, I come from where I come from in, in London. It's a little place, little place on the Thames called Erith in Kent. Little place on the Thames, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Little place on the Thames called Erith. Just shows you how long you can be. It's not really on the Thames like Henley's on the Thames or Richmond's on the Thames. It's on the Thames like Rotherham's on the Don. <laughs> It's quite like, it's quite similar to Rotherham, only industrial. <laughs> <laughs> it's still a news agent's open. Um, it's a sort of, oh, it's a very nice, no, it's not actually, it's a shit league, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> truly horrible place, and my upbringing was very tough. I went to a very tough local comprehensive school. Bexley School. School motto, see my mate Trevor, right? I'm going to kick your fucking head in. Sounds a lot better in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> So, so it's. I mean, you could. This, these are not uh, recordings made for commercial issue or broadcasting, right? Because you can hear the the sound of the pub's ice machine or whatever it is in the background <laughs> towards the end of that. But I mean, I think I think that's. I mean, we've got quite a lot of um, sort of unpublished recordings in the archive. Yeah, we do, especially Linda's collection. Yeah, um, we do have a lot in Mark's collection as well. Although they were, I think they were recorded through the sound kind of sound deck. Yeah. So you don't get as much background noise. But yeah, we do have quite a lot of kind of early homemade kind of recordings of Linda. Um, and when she was recording with Anne Lavelle as part of... Um, Token Women. Token Women. Or Tough um, Lovers. Tough Lovers, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah no, it's interesting. And, and, and of course, one of the advantages of... Of, um, of, of, of of unpublished recordings is that you get the unvarnished thing you know it's not we know it's not edited because if you were recording something onto audio cassette you had no way of editing that and actually I mean one of the things we've got in the archive is uh, from Andy De La Tour is we've got recordings of alternative cabaret that some of the recording sessions that went on to become the alternative cabaret LP and I've listened to them that you know the the published version has, has appeared on the LP and the actual performance. And it's really interesting. It really changes your perception of the performance. In some ways, it's 
in some ways, making it tighter and neater is unflattering because mm-hmm. you don't hear the full interaction of the comedian with the audience. For example, okay. Jim Barclay's one, I think you really start to see the appeal of the act or hear the appeal of the act when you hear even the bits that don't make sense where it was a visual bit. Just hearing him do that and particularly hearing him interacting with the audience and reacting to hecklers and things, you realise what a funny guy he was and how good he was at being just on stage and being a comedian kind of thing. Can Where, you hear the audience in the in the published copy? Yeah, you can hear the audience in both. I mean, normally if you make a live recording, you record the from the auditorium because you need to be able to hear the audience's response. If you, if you record through the desk, you get a much better sound quality but you lose on the whole the audience's response so almost all commercial recordings will have at least a microphone on on the audience anyway so yeah that's 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 linda talking about um Aerith early on and we have a couple of her her set lists are undated so you but you can work out roughly when they're from because of the material that's referenced in them and you can compare that with the um with the recordings so this is a recording i think it's probably glasgow mayfest because it starts off with her talking about mayfest and then talking about glasgow and then she has her comparing it with edinburgh so although she did talk about glasgow mayfest in other record you know in other performances there's so much glasgow stuff on this set list that i think that must have been where she was performing but this section uh is headed biog and I think, you know, as I was saying, it's where she, her work starts to become more autobiographical. Um, the fact she's calling it Biog and it says Southeast, Erith slash River slash Glasgow shit. Garden outside toilet. So that's a really funny joke uh, that I can't remember coming across in the recordings. But she had a joke, which is that uh, if Kent is the Garden of England, Erith is the outside toilet. This <laughs> <laughs> is a brilliant joke. This is another set list from around the same time. So um, this is, uh, it, it's, uh, it says north, it's headed north-south and it starts with home of the curly perm. So yeah, that's, that's you know, the kind of thing she was talking about. But in that one, you see the actual joke starting to appear because there's one of the jokes listed in that section, suicide pact. Um, so now let's hear the joke in the earliest recorded version that we've managed to find from the Irish Centre in Sheffield in 1990. My hometown of Erith, a little town in south-east London so miserable and depressing it's not twinned with anywhere. Though it does have a suicide pact with Rotherham. It's <laughs> sort of town. It's a... Uh... What I like about that is you can hear, it's in Sheffield, so Rotherham is a really powerful local reference, and you can hear the power of the joke. You know, you, there's a big laugh there. She keeps talking, but the audi- The reason I clipped it like that is because she keeps talking, but the audience is still laughing at the joke. And it's also interesting, of course, because the the, the subject of the joke or the, 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 the suicide pact in that case, in that version, is Rotherham, which is kind of like the joke in, in Funny Cow, except in that one it's Rotherham that's being likened to Doncaster. So there's a sort of similarity there. I also felt we've not, we not got the audio for this because it was televised and we haven't got the permission to use it, but there was a show called Packet of Three, a kind of forgotten show, but an important one. Uh, it, was, it started, it was in 1991, and it was 
it was like a sort it was like the Muppets in the Muppet show in in format in the sense that you saw acts live on stage but then there were sitcom elements of the backstage just like in the Muppet show where you saw the acts on stage and then you saw Kermit and the others doing the backstage stuff only in this case Kermit was Henry Normal the the comic poet and you know later a uh, very important comedy producer worked a lot with Steve Coogan and so on um, and also in the show were the other stars were Frank Skinner, who played a kind of caretaker character, and Jenny Eclair, who played a kind of, um, I think she's like taking the tickets and selling the ice creams, that kind of thing. But as I say, it had stage things, and the stage things were performed to a real audience, and they were real acts from the circuit. And Linda appeared on it on Channel 4 on the 23rd of August 1991. In fact, that was the first early version of the joke that I found when I started doing the research and in that case the butt of the joke is Salford so Erith uh, has a suicide pact with Salford Do you know where it was filmed Packet of Three? I yeah it was it, in the thing it was supposed to be I forget the name of it now but it was a fictional theatre and I can't actually remember where it's filmed, but it was filmed somewhere in the north of England. Uh, it was, you know, obviously in a real theatre, a real historical theatre kind of thing. Uh, but it was, oh, I wish I could, I should have really done the research on that. But um, Would the Salford reference have been... Um, local like enough, local, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah I, th- I, th- I think it would have been local enough for the audience to, to get it, yeah. I mean, I mean you, you mentioned earlier that there was a sort of strong association between Linda and the joke... And you're absolutely right about that. I mean, I did some research and I found that um, Jeremy Hardy wrote an obituary of her. It was a close friend of hers for the, for the Guardian. He quoted it. Uh, Mark Steele quoted it in the Independent obituary he, he wrote. He was another close friend. There was an interview in The Observer around the time of her death with Warren, Warren Aiken, um, published on the 5th of March 2006, where the joke was quoted. And even, you know, it, it continues to be so. I mean, Linda died over 10 years ago now. But, uh, for example, Metro quoted it on the 19th of August 2015. Daily Telegraph quoted it on the 7th of January uh, 2017, which is only just last year. Um, so it, it it continues to be associated with Linda. And if you go to WikiQuote and look up the jokes, it's one of Linda's jokes that's quoted on WikiQuote. It's quoted on the QI website coming from her, quoted in LibQuotes. So it is very, very strongly associated with Linda because going back to the idea that maybe it was a standard joke, maybe she took it from someone else, which I doubt anyway because she wrote her own material and she was from the generation where that was the ethos. But even if it had been an unconscious thing and she'd sort of taken it from somewhere else, how come we've not found it? I mean, you can't prove a negative. But I think, like, if the quote is continuing well over 10 years after Linda died, it continues to be quoted by, you know, as an example, by her. Incidentally, the quoted version is almost always Dagenham, Mm. has a suicide pact with Dagenham. Um, but you know it, why hasn't if somebody wrote it if Jasper Carrot or somebody or one of his writers wrote it in the 70s or somebody else wrote it why haven't they come forward and gone well you say that's Linda Smith it's actually me I think it's Linda's joke I can't prove it absolutely but what we can prove is that she was doing it as early as 1990 and and that it continues to be associated with her now I mentioned Crook's social club earlier i think what do you think do you think it's time to bring that back in okay all right so crook's social club was a working men's club but 
In the early 1990s, Warren, who was Linda's partner but also kind of represented her, put together a club, a comedy club, uh, called Route 52. Um, and do you want shall I tell you the story of why it's called that? Yeah. All right. So Route, Route 52, 52 bus. I used to get the 52. Uh, it was one of the big, one of the classic Sheffield buses, uh, Route 52. And obviously you get via Route 52 to the club. So it told people who didn't live in Crooks or that part of Sheffield how to get there as well. Quite clever okay. name. But it was, a, it was sort of a private hire thing. I think they alternated with a world music night. Neither of these things were part of the standard entertainment in the club. It was an alternative comedy night. And there were times when the acts that were on there, you know, had problems with the, the normal clientele of the club, the members of the club, because they didn't fit with their idea of what, what they should be or something. Um, but uh, Linda was the compare of Route 52. And bear in mind that there weren't that many women comics in the working men's club scene. It just seems like a weird coincidence that a film written by a Sheffield writer would use a, a line strongly associated with somebody who didn't come from Sheffield but, but, but started her career in Sheffield, was strongly associated with the city. And furthermore, that the club, Crook's Club, was the location for long, you know, important scenes in, in the film and that Linda had been the compare of that club. It seems... You know, I'm not saying that they consciously borrowed the joke. I'm just saying it seems unlikely they didn't know that there was a connection there. I mean, it's it's just a, it's just a bizarre set of coincidences, I think. But we have some more set lists here. So this one, for example, um, have you seen this one before? No, I can't remember seeing it, but... Um, we do have a whole box of... Yeah, it is a whole box. <laughs> ...of set lists which aren't dated because um, some of the set lists we have been able to date yeah. or they were already in date folders um, by Warren who'd put them who'd done a bit of organisation before yeah. it came to us but yeah we've got a whole box of undated set lists and that's quite important <laughs> isn't it where, where the, the the donor um, orders the material you try and preserve that ordering yeah it's quite interesting because um, obviously Warren um published a book with Ian Parsons yeah. about Linda. So they'd already done, they'd already gone through the archive quite substantially to, in order to write that book. Yeah. Um, and had done some organisation as part of yeah. that. So. In fact, they, I mean, they, I think they, they, I mean, they, there were two books published around the mm. same time. There's Driving Miss Smith, which is a sort of memoir of Warren's life with Linda, which is very, very good. Um, well, they're both really good. The other is, the, I think the nurses are stealing my clothes, which is a sort of, compilation of bits of transcript of Linda's work but with testimonies from people who know knew and admired her um and and, and you know with some nice cartoons in there and things um so so that's uh that's a really you know um that it's, it's interesting we've got that association not just with Linda's work but also with the things that have been done since she died you know mm -hmm. like the books that have been published and so on um, so yeah th this this is from a gig in Rochester and I don't know what the date but I could tell you that it's quite it's much later than those other ones and I'll tell you why because it says rival attractions there and that was a gag that she did and she changed it you know it was one as a local reference gag essentially and we've got recordings from around 2000 and beyond where she does that route that that kind of gag so I my guess is this is maybe around 2000 
And on this one, it's Aerith Gravesend. And although she doesn't refer to it as Suicide Pact in the set list, I think the fact it says Aerith Gravesend clearly means it's Suicide Pact with Gravesend. Mm. And that's a local reference to Rochester, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then there's this one written... Well, this is on a, on a different kind of paper, isn't it? It's on a... It's like a sticky note. It's a sticky yeah. note. Yeah, it's a post-it note. And this one... I, I mean, I picked this one out particularly because... Uh, and again, you can sort of see that this is this is a later one because of the other references on it. But uh, this one is Erith hyphen Dagenham. So this is a, a set list where she's telling the classic version of the joke, the, the most quoted version where it's Erith has a suicide pact with Dagenham. Now, I thought we could finish off with a uh, another recording, a much later one. So the one we heard, from the, the first, the earliest recording we found was from 1990. This is from 14 years later from a performance in Sudbury on the 6th of May 2004. And the reason I picked this one out is because in this version, she doesn't just tell the joke. She also talks about the joke, so it sort of it spins out from there. But also, I mean, I think it shows you, again, the, the, the strength of association between her and the joke. Um, because, I mean, she's doing the gag for at least 14 years of her career. That's a long joke. It's like a signature joke in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, like, say, Henny Youngman had Take My Wife, Please. Hers is Suicide Pact. That's her mm-hmm. joke, I think. And this, let's hear it now. It's from Sudbury, 2004. Edit! I've no business to mock anyone else's town because I come from a miserable place. I come from an awful place called Erith. Um, place, uh, even if you've never heard of it, you just laugh. You think, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's in uh, what's called uh, oh, it's sort of south-east London, Stroke, Kent, really. It's, uh, well, it's what's known as Greater London. But to be honest, the thir- further you get away from the middle of it, London doesn't really get greater. It's better where there is stuff, actually. <laughs> it's more lesser London, really. Um, lesser London, it, it is. And I'll tell you how miserable it is. Erith is so miserable and depressing and dreary and soul-destroying and boring that it's not even twinned with anywhere. <laughs> now, it does have a suicide pact with Braintree. It's... <laughs> Seems to be going quite well. I think Marjorie put a leaflet in the library. <laughs> now, to give an idea of how humorless Erith is, uh, I did a version of that joke uh, on television once. I say a version, because I'll be honest with you, I don't always say Braintree at that point. <laughs> Although, frankly, Swindon works anywhere in Britain. <laughs> and parts of Europe. <laughs> But uh, no, don't always say brand tree, but version of that. And the following week, my Auntie Helen sent me the. Auntie, well, it doesn't matter if you know, do you? I mean, I mean, you don't strictly need to know it's her. Promise me you won't stalk her. <laughs> Just that. That's all I ask. My Auntie Helen sent me the local paper, the Erith and Crayford Observer, in- incorporating the Kentish Times. I don't know why that doesn't have a wider circulation, really. But anyway, she sent it to me. I mean, I love a town. I love civic information, generally. I do. I just love it. Gather it wherever I go. Brilliant leaflet I picked up near Cleethorpes. Big list of all the attractions in Cleethorpes. And the slogan was, Cleethorpes, there has to be more. (laughs) 
<sighs> so anyway, she sent me the Earth in Crayford Observer, and there was a headline that big, which screamed, "Local girl slams Erith." <laughs> the article began, "Erith reeled." Erith reeled as on national television it was dubbed boring. They brought in a local councillor, a Mr. Valentine Muir Morgan. Feel free to stalk. <laughs> Who was outraged and said, this is a slur on our town. It's not boring, it's interesting. And it is twinned with somewhere, for, for her information, we're twinned with a town in France that's quite near Paris. No, lesser Paris, I suppose, but quite near Paris. But for me, the giveaway was the final paragraph, which read, this is the second time in one week that Erith has been dubbed boring. <laughs> the first time was when the competition to name the new Erith Leisure Centre was won by the competitor who suggested it be called the Erith Leisure Centre. <laughs> Maladma case rests. Edit. I think that's a really great bit. I think she's really funny in that. I mean, the 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 frequency and volume of laughter is really good. I mean, she's just this is this happens just after the interval. It's like the second half of the show. And I, I like I, I like that when comedians talk about their material. You know, it, they talk, you know they acknowledge the the fiction of what they do and, and they're honest about that. But then they spin out from that and sort of make that funny. And 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 I also I like the sincerity of when she's talking about how much she hates her hometown, which is going so boring and depressing and miserable. And and, and I also like her delight in boring towns, like the the Cleethorpes thing. But the the one thing that I thought when I when I listened to it was I, it just struck me what a great well constructed joke the suicide pack joke is because it's got a little punchline on the way it's so miserable it's not twin with anywhere and I have heard recordings where that doesn't get a laugh but mainly it does and interestingly I told the when we had the Linda Smith lecture I always introduced the the, the speaker just just a couple of minutes at the start of the show. And I told the story of this joke to the audience and I read out the joke and just me reading it, you know, without her delivery, the the there was a laugh, sure enough, when it says not twinned with anywhere, laugh. And then of course the pun the proper punchline and yeah, big laugh. So it shows the power of the joke. I mean, they stole from the best yeah. in the film. Well, it's not stole, borrowed, uh, <laughs> you know, appropriated. But I mean, you know, that's it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing how 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 what and I think as well why comedians maybe thought that it was a standard joke was because it has that has the ring of a classic, but I think often art in general does when somebody creates something that's really effective, people go well why hasn't this always existed? It feels like it ha has always existed if you if you like. It's interesting that she she acknowledges that she's used it a lot of times. Yeah, do comics do that regularly? Do they say oh. I recycle this joke. Well, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because the the, the 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 because because it sort of breaks the the illusion that everything they're saying is just mm -hmm. off the top of their head. Because it uh, is a very well referenced joke through all the collection that we've got. Yeah, people must have known that that was a joke if they'd read a review prior to going to a show. Yeah, it it often was referenced in reviews, but it does still always get a laugh. Yeah. Despite 
despite people kind of knowing the punchline, I guess. It's a, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think I think comedians do acknowledge their their process in their act, not infrequently, and that's essentially what she's doing. So they you know, it's, it's, you know, a lot of comedians now say, "When I wrote this show, like they'll they'll talk about that." You know, they, so it, it it's more of a thing. And I think comedians do often have tales of when they've said something before. Um, there's even um, sort of there's a, there's a sort of format for a routine where you ask the audience a question. You get their funny answers and you say funny things back to them in, off the cuff. Mm. But then you collect their funny answers and then that the routine grows time after time. And then you always have something funny, your own funny response to it to finish the routine so you can guarantee finishing with a laugh. Well, that's built on the process of, you know, of, of, of repetition. And, and you know, and you say, you know, I did that in Salford or I did that in Dagenham. I'm saying all the names of the mm. places she references or Braintree. And someone said X or Y, you know, and then that's funny. And and so the audience feel part of an ongoing process, I suppose. But it's interesting, the other point that you make is, you know, why is it funny if you know it already? And I think the answer is that you wouldn't be able to buy comedy DVDs or albums or, or, or whatever if people didn't like listening to things they're already familiar with. But also, sometimes I've heard comedians tell a joke that's in the pre-publicity for the show but they tell it in the thing and it still gets a laugh. Mm. I don't think audiences are too bothered about that. I think if you did the whole thing that they were already very familiar with, I think they would probably complain unless they knew that's what you were going to do. But I don't think they mind, you know, the odd joke. I don't think they mind knowing that in advance. Anyway, this podcast isn't just about us telling you things. It's also about you getting involved. Get involved! There are various ways that you can get involved in this podcast, but first of all, you'll need to know how to contact us. You can email us via standup at kent.ac.uk. That's standup, all one word, no hyphen, at kent.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at histcompod. And we're also on Facebook got a facebook page uh, the first way you can get involved is go to the catalogue which you can find online find a listing for a comedy object and nominate it we'll talk about all nominated objects in future episodes that's the vanilla version and if you do that we're going to send you a badge of the um of the podcast and also a badge of the stand-up comedy archive so do remember to include a postal address the chocolate chip version of getting involved is to send us an email, arrange to come into the Stand Up Comedy Archive, look at some material for yourself, record a short piece about one of the objects that you've seen. If you do this, you'll be given an amazing Stand Up Comedy Archive limited edition t-shirt in your appropriate clothing size. And uh, a podcast badge as well. Um, and we'll use those recordings in, in future episodes. And the stupidest way of getting involved is to record your own version of our theme tune, and if we like it, we'll use it in a future episode. One last thing, please leave a review of this podcast on iTunes. It's really important to us. And if you do that, send us a screen grab of your review uh, on an email or something, and we'll and leave a postal address, and we'll send you a badge. A history of comedy and several objects is devised and presented by Dr. Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund.
photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hoss.